Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. A visit from Aunt Flo, being on the rag, riding the crimson tide, girl flu, even the red wedding. Menstruation is something that half the world's population experiences for a week at a time, for years on end, and yet we still struggle to talk about it directly. There's no such thing as a quote-unquote normal cycle, as anthropologist Kate Clancy explains in her new book, Period, The Real Story of Menstruation. And we shouldn't hold ourselves to an artificial 28-day standard. Our periods are variable and responsive to all kinds of forces in our lives, from inflammation and psychological stress to changes in diet and environment. But shockingly, doctors viewed periods as useless, even toxic, well into the 20th century. And some still believe that it's unsafe to swim with a tampon in. It's not. Kate Clancy, a professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, joins the podcast to challenge uterine myths, expose the eugenic roots of gynecology, and bring a feminist perspective to that special time of the month. Thank you so much for talking to me, Kate, forthrightly about our periods. Thanks for having me. So uh, round about page three in your introduction, you have this line where you say, there are crypts in the cervix that store sperm for when the uterus feels like using them. There are chemicals in menstrual fluid that help you repair tissue. And as soon as I read those, I said out loud, what the hell? I had no idea. Periods were so cool. I feel like you probably had that realization much earlier than I did. When did you realize that periods were so cool? Oh, gosh. Um, first, it was that I realized menstrual cycles were so cool. Uh, you know, that there were these hormones that go up and down um, and that ovulation is this really dynamic process. And it wasn't until I realized that we talked a lot about menstrual cycles, but never about menstruation that I started to ask, well, what is going on here? Like, what's interesting about it? And then it was kind of doing my own deep dive, like in my PhD, where I started studying the endometrium as part of my dissertation project. And that's the lining of the uterus. Um, that's kind of when I began to realize like, okay, what we do know is wild and awesome. And there's so much left that remains to be known. Mm -hmm. Well, why do you think it's so important to talk about quote unquote the real story of menstruation like what do we what are the misconceptions that are still around today about periods and I guess like how do you dispel those there's a couple questions in there I think I'd maybe start with you know the there's a bigger issue right of menstrual stigma and this way that menstruation is something that we don't feel comfortable talking about um, there's a lot of silence around it when you survey people who do menstruate and ask them to kind of reflect back on what they learned about menstruation. Um, often the number one thing they really wish they had learned was how to actually manage it. And I think there is this, even though I think we've hit this kind of girl power or, you know, let's address period poverty, let's address the tampon tax. We've hit this point in certain ways where we're willing to have like a big picture conversation about periods. When it comes to the fact that there's like blood and lymph and gloopy clots. And just like there's an actual textural thing for us to be talking about here, um, we're still pretty uncomfortable. And so that means that even when we can talk about the tampon tax, it is really hard to talk about, you know, how to actually insert a tampon, how often to change out a pad, 
the ways that menstrual flow changes when you're lying down to sleep at night. Um, and those are the kinds of things that, are, that actually affect the day-to-day -day lived experience of menstruating people. Um, so for me, that's kind of the big overarching issue is that if we can't even talk about what it is like to be menstruating, I literally got my period this morning. I'm menstruating right now. <laughs> and yet most of the time when I have my period, it's not something that I disclose or that most menstruating people disclose, right? That it's, um, even though I had dozens and dozens of periods while writing this book, like every time it was happening, I wasn't necessarily disclosing it in the moment. So for me, that's the big part. And then in terms of the real story, I think we've spent so much time not disclosing, not discussing, again, avoiding that real and I think incredibly interesting texture to what it means to be a menstruating person. It's meant that we actually haven't gotten into the science of it at all. Like people don't even know what menstruation is made of. I mean, a lot of scientists now know, but like most of us in our daily lives, there's this stuff that we excrete. We don't really know what it's made of. Um, and it would be kind of interesting to know more. Well, let's start with that, with what menstrual fluid effluvium actually is. So menstruation is, I mean, the process itself of menstruation is this process where, you know, once your endometrial tissue needs to be sloughed off um, and rehealed so that it can grow again in the next cycle, um, you have to do something with that tissue. And we have a fairly copious amount of endometrial tissue, so it kind of needs to go somewhere. Um, there are lots of regenerative things that were happening in our bodies all the time. We have tissue in our GI tract that's constantly being, you know, repleted in various ways, plenty of other places in our body. Um, but there's enough here that it's, and it's copious enough that especially in humans and a few other species, we actually have to excrete it. Um, and that's basically what menses is. It's that plus all of the various types of inflammatory and immune um, healing factors that are actually involved both in the removal of and rehealing of that endometrial wall. Those are those chemicals in menstrual fluid that help repair tissue that I reacted to, huh? Yep, exactly. <laughs> so why do we menstruate beyond needing to expel that tissue? There is all kinds of interesting theories that you discuss. Um, some of them are competing. I guess, what is, what is the current theory about why we menstruate at all? What I think is interesting is that in some ways, um, they don't have to be in competition. Something that is really common, especially in my field in anthropology and human evolution, is that people really want to believe in what's called a prime mover hypothesis. You know, that like there is one dominating reason that something happened. You know, the ones in human evolution we're obsessed with are why did our brains get so big? Why did we get onto two feet? You know, things like that. Um, why did we disperse as widely as we did all over the planet? People want like one big reason, and then they fight over which big reason is the right one. Um, the current big reasons, I would say, are at least three. So there's an energy economy hypothesis that Dr. Bev Strassman has put forward, which is this idea that, you know, you can't endlessly maintain this very energy dense endometrial tissue and just kind of hope things come along Instead, it makes more sense to get rid of it and rebuild it periodically, um, just because the cost of maintaining that expensive tissue is just too much. Um, I think that there's some merit in that, even though it has largely been discounted. Um, we do know that energy needs increase in the luteal phase. People are often a little hungrier um, around that time because they actually do have greater energy needs. The other big one is Dr. Colin Finn's hypothesis, the terminal differentiation hypothesis. 
And that one is the idea that this is kind of like a, a basic physiology story that when uh, cells differentiate, they can only differentiate kind of to a point and it's called terminal differentiation. So um, after that point, they can't exactly go backwards and they can't go any farther forwards. So they kind of have to die and start over. So it's like a, a physiological argument. That has been the most popular one, I would say, for the last couple of decades. Um, I don't think it's in competition with this idea that energetics are also part of the story. And then there's this new story that's maybe 10, 15 years old max um, that uh, Evo Brosens and colleagues have discussed. And it's this idea that menstruation itself is a form of practice to help us create the kinds of uterine architecture we need to support pregnancy. Um, that it is actually challenging for the uterus to make, you know, the gorgeous, incredibly complex, very energy invasive architecture it needs to support uh, pregnancy, to support a placenta, all that fun stuff. And if that's going to happen, then the uterus has to get good at it. And so it makes sense for it to try a couple of times um, before actually getting pregnant. So menstruation is kind of representing that repair and healing process and building process that we really need um, for pregnancy to go well. There's some interesting indirect evidence here or inferences that can be made for when people are menstruating less frequently, that that is one path by which you can see an increased risk for something like preeclampsia. So um, I think that's also another really compelling hypothesis that I don't think is in competition per se with these others. One of the most interesting parts of the book to me was the time you spent discussing the scientific history that came before these relatively modern theories like how eugenics and ideals of white femininity underpin not just the study of menstrual cycles, but gynecology. Can you talk about how these cultural forces have impacted how we think about menstruation, separate from, but really kind of leading into some of these theories? Absolutely. Um, this is the one of the things that felt, um, understanding the cultural and historical forces on the study of menstruation was something that felt inescapable to me. Like it felt impossible to write this book without spending quite a bit of time on this, which is why so many of the chapters have these extended vignettes of talking about, you know, limited energy theory, eugenics, um, and how all of those things are all tied together. Um, and that's because in a lot of ways, because the founding of gynecology was very much in the protection of fertility of white women, and also in the protection and control of knowledge, primarily by white men, a lot of the research questions that we've had about menses have been really defined by the white men who founded gynecology, um, which means that they were mainly concerned with fertility, even though the menstrual cycle involves a lot of other systems and is relevant to a lot of other things in our lives than just whether or not we want to make babies. Um, and it also, of course, means that the preservation of fertility and the treatment of white women was very different than the treatment of many other types of people who have been interested in learning more, understanding more of their menstrual cycles, seeking treatment for issues around their menstrual cycles or treatment for infertility issues. So it has affected our research questions. It has affected clinical outcomes. It's affected the kinds of hypotheses or stories that we tell about how menstruation even works or any of the processes of the cycle. Um, so one of the things I talk a little bit about in the book is the fact that, you know, eugenics and white supremacy um, mean that we have a very particular idea of what it means to be feminine, which often gets conflated with, you know, with biology of the reproductive tract, right? 
So when we have that and we have this idea that like to be civilized, to be proper, to be objective is to have these two very different sexes, to have them behave very differently, to look very differently. We're talking about like being very slender. We're talking about being passive. What else have we been taught to be very nurturing? You know, all of this, all of the standards of sort of normative white femininity have bled into the questions we ask about how reproduction works, what periods do, you know, and if it's not serving some idea of human evolution or some idea of what might please men, then these things are, are rendered like useless or passive or otherwise not important to the study of fertility and science. It all sounded kind of abstract to me. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, this is just the water we're swimming in. Like, what isn't affected by this? Until you quoted from some very recent narratives of how egg interacts with sperm in reproduction. So can you talk about, like, specifically, you know, how this gets into these theories, you know, and and how the actual biology undermines that kind of myth. And a lot of what I was talking about there, just to give credit where credit is due, is this amazing paper by Dr. Emily Martin, The Egg and the Sperm, where she um, does this analysis of a bunch of textbook descriptions. And, and this is in the 1990s, but the thing is, is an additional analyses of the language that we use show that this is still how we talk about reproduction, is that the side that we deem female is usually passive and the side that we deem male is active. And in fact, we also see them in very capitalist ways, like, you know, productive is another term that you see a lot on when we're talking about male reproduction. So gamete fusion, like where the sperm and egg come together, we often use the term fertilization, which I'm really trying myself to avoid using, even though I've been using it for 40 something years, um, because it implies this action of one thing into another. And, and when we use that term fertilization, we usually mean the sperm into the egg, right? Um, but really what's happening is something where both the sperm and the egg have massive amounts of agency. Um, you know, you were mentioning the crypts at the beginning. You know, the uterus is doing absolutely wild things. Like there's only this one study from the 80s, but uh, there is absolutely evidence across the animal world that um, you see similar things like this happening across other animals. So I, I, I think, you know, even with the evidence base we have, this is still a very compelling story, which is that... Um, women who are about to get hysterectomies agreed to be artificially inseminated. And then they looked at what was at where the sperm was basically when they did the hysterectomy and they were able to see the storage of sperm, like in the little, <laughs> like basically in the nooks and crannies of the cervix, there were places where the sperm was stored. Um, and the idea is that the uterus is able to decide to some extent whether and when certain sperm make their way into the uterus and through the fallopian tube, and we have evidence of this in other elements of the uterus as well. So the uterus is actually far choosier than we've ever given it credit for. Um, the egg itself also is not passive at all. Um, rather than just kind of waiting, it is moving. <laughs> in addition to the fact that like once it fuses with one sperm, it very aggressively keeps any other sperm from getting in. It's also selective about which sperm it actually chooses in that moment. Um, the sperm itself also is doing some choosing in this moment. So again, instead of seeing this as like somebody has to be a winner, which I feel like so much of biology is um, because of the Western influences of how we think about evolution and evolutionary biology, we always think about competition. We always think there has to be a winner. But really, we're talking about a time when these two gametes are acting in concert and making decisions to some extent together. Um, the one last thing I'll say is that uh, if you move back from that moment of reproduction to how does ovulation even happen, 
that is also a moment of tons of activity on the part of the ovary. And so um, instead of just sort of this one uh, wave of competition and recruitment of a dominant follicle that then gets ovulated and that's, that's the egg, um, instead these waves are happening like they're growing and regressing two to three times per cycle. And there's evidence that among people with PCOS, this might be happening five, six, seven times. And so what we're looking at is actually, um, instead of like a long period of quiescence while that egg is just like waiting for the prince, it's actually already like, no, no, I'm already onto the next thing. It's already starting to recruit again and start to think about the next cycle the second ovulation happens. So there is no moment of just sitting and waiting. It is a constant site of activity. What you're describing is pretty amazing and makes the uterus sound wildly sophisticated, um, which is even more incredible given where modern studies of the menstrual cycle began. Although to call the particular study I'm going to bring up scientific is kind of a stretch. More than anything, it kind of proves that the stigma against menstruation is real and longstanding. So this is the study of menotoxin, which for the record is not real but was studied for way too long and given way too much legitimacy, especially given the methodology involving rats and flowers and infected blood. It's, it is a, to keep it PG, banana pants kind of a story. I mean, it's just, this again shows how cultural and historical forces act on science and how scientists would be so much better served by acknowledging the moments that we're in, by acknowledging our lived experience and our beliefs and how that might influence our science. Um, because this story is over a century old at this point. Um, you know, first you have to trace backward the ways in which menstruation started to be seen as something dirty or bad. Um, you can look at, you know, medieval textbooks that show, quote, woman is not human, but a monster. Um, a menstruous woman can poison an infant with a glance with the poisonous glare from its eyes, the fumes from menstruation can be harmful to others. Um, there are all sorts of ways in which this harm and this danger and this toxicity is multiple centuries old. Um, but it wasn't until the 1920s, so about 100 years ago, that a doctor decided to systematically study the menotoxin, which is what he then labeled it. So Dr. Bella Schick was, there's, there's a couple versions of the story, but um, the main version is that he was given flowers by some grateful uh, patient. And when he asked a medical attendant, hey, will you please put these in water for me? She initially refused. And when he pressured her, no, I need you to do this right now. Um, she eventually said, oh, well, I have my period and I have learned that when I touch flowers, when I am menstruating, the flowers wilt and I don't want your flowers to wilt, which to me is a pretty good story if you don't wanna like touch somebody's flowers because that's way below your pay grade. Like you got better things to do. But who knows, maybe this was a belief she held and the story is true. So, you know, he is compelled by this and he decides to do some analyses of different, he and others, you know, many others took up the cause, decided to start doing these studies where they would um, put different types of flowers and they measured a ton of different plants with this. Um, they would just, you know, put plants in water or they would have a menstruating person handle the plants and put them in water. Um, there were a number of other, of other variants on the plant toxicity question of the metotoxin. And uh, with some, you know, the classic images that you can find, um, you see like one beautiful looking daisy and then one that's just sort of wilted over. But there were other times that they did, they did these analyses that there was no real difference, uh, no matter how roughly they were likely asking people, menstruating people to handle these flowers. Um, there were other times that there were supposed extracts of menstruation 
being used to see how toxic they were and they were injecting them into the rats. Many of these rats died, um, but that's likely because of uncontrolled infections because you probably shouldn't inject the blood, like the menstrual blood from one species into another species. But the thing is, these ideas continue to grind in this idea that menstruation is dirty, um, but also that um, it means that the, the sort of female body or the menstruating body is inherently uncontrollable and pathological. Because these same people who were studying this were also comparing um, a premenstrual or menstruating person to a psychotic person or a person with uncontrolled diabetes or other types of phenomena. Case studies, as well as these conversations that you can see in old editions of The Lancet, which is a major medical journal, uh, where people are just writing back and forth to each other, pitching ideas about how gross periods are and what they must be doing to people. And again, what it continued to reaffirm was this idea that if you are menstruating, there is something inherently wrong with that process or gross or toxic about that process, which is comparable to a pathological process. Well, I mean, it's not like that's entirely dissipated, right? Um, you quote this one study that was done involving uh, a tampon falling out of a purse or a hair clip falling out of a purse. And that too was also too recent for my comfort. Absolutely. So that study was a really fun one where um, the lead author, Dr. Tomian Roberts and colleagues did this study where they had a person who thought they were coming to do a project and group productivity or a bunch of people. But the, the setup was the person who thinks they're coming to do a study on group productivity is waiting in a room for their partner, but they don't know that their partner is not another study participant, but an actor pretending to be one. So uh, she walks into the room sets her handbag down, fumbles around in it, and then there are two potential conditions. In one, she drops a tampon, returns it, puts on some lip balm, and puts it down. So you think, oh, she meant to grab lip balm, dropped a tampon instead. In the other, the same thing happens, but with a hair clip. She drops a hair clip, gets it back out, grabs some lip balm, puts it on, puts it down. So in this other condition, it's, oh, she meant to grab lip balm and grabbed a hair clip instead. But that means you're exposed either to a tampon or a hair clip. Then they sit down and they do all of these little um, surveys to look to think about competency and likability and warmth, some of the classic things that we study when we study group dynamics. And what the authors of that study found was that um, in the tampon dropping condition, that actor was seen as less competent. And if I remember also less warm, um, though I don't have it right in front of me right now. The other piece of that study that I found so compelling this part was not statistically significant, but I thought was still meaningful, is they also did a study to kind of assess disgust. So when you were done with the study, the two people are supposed to leave the room and go to a waiting area where there were five chairs set up. So the actor goes out and sits on one chair at one end immediately so that the other person has to decide where to sit in relation to that person. And under the tampon dropping condition, they were more likely to sit farther away than in the hair clip dropping condition. You kind of hope that stuff like that doesn't still happen, but it is really, you know, as with a lot of biases, just like deeply ingrained in our heads. And, you know, part of me thinks like, well, it's not really our fault entirely because so much of what we've been talking about isn't a personal thing at all. It's like a systemic issue. And I, I bring that up because I first came across your work, not because of this book, but because I saw your tweet during the pandemic about the vaccine and whether the vaccine had 
affected anybody's menstrual cycles. Mine was actually impacted too. And I, the reason I found it is because I was like, has anybody's vaccine, you know, impacted their menstrual cycle? And I thought that was so interesting that one, nobody had really looked at it. And two, that there was so much resistance from doctors and from other scientists into like even looking at it at all. Yeah. Yeah. There were, there were, um, a couple of things that happened to us and have continued to be problems actually, as we conduct this research. So, you know, as someone who's been studying the menstrual cycle and periods for 20 ish years, more than that now have decent expertise here. Um, but I'm not an MD, but actually that means that my training in this is better, right? I don't just get a half day on this is what the menstrual cycle is. I've been systematically researching it for quite some time. So, um, you know, just anyone who is a researcher like me in menstruation science can immediately draw some links, right? If you hear enough anecdata, just sort of lived experience about this, you start to think, you know, I wonder if there's a connection. And it makes sense that there might be one because the uterus is an immune organ. It is one that is very responsive to changes in inflammation. It uses inflammatory processes to do a lot of its communicating. Um, and also it's an organ that is involved in bleeding and clotting, right? Because it can bleed up to 400 times over the course of a person's life. Um, and of course, while that's happening, there's also the clotting and healing process happening inside our bodies that we don't always think a lot about, um, which is one of the major things impacted in the immune response. So part of the whole immune infrastructure, right? Like if you get a cut, what happens? First, you start to bleed and all sorts of, you know, chemical messengers are being sent to that area to start to do all sorts of cool inflammatory things to encourage wound healing to happen. What's the other thing that happens? You start to have clotting, right? In order to seal the wound. So bleeding and clotting are very important elements of the immune response. So again, if you have something very immunogenic, like these mRNA vaccines that I am so happy to have to reduce severity of COVID, and I will take every booster that you can stick in my arm possible. Um, I still think that, you know, scientifically there's something here, right? We've got something that is invoking a giant immune response. We know that this is what vaccines do. Um, we can see it even in the flu vaccine. That's a nothing burger for so many people. So of course it's happening in this one where lots of people are reporting, you know, fever, fatigue, sore arm and more. So of course we expect this downstream thing to happen in the uterus. And yet what happened was that as our work began to pick up steam and we began to develop a survey, there were three responses. One was, you know, the utter disbelief of there's no biological mechanism. And this is people without expertise speaking to people with expertise, which I found pretty offensive. Then there was the, you know, the pandemic is a stressful time for all of us. You're probably over-interpreting your own bodily response. So the pandemic stress response and then the third one was, well, this is just a convenience sample and this is just a, you know, a weird hype thing happening where everyone is perceiving it because they're seeing it in the literature, they're seeing it on social media. Um, and the way you're collecting your data is not, you know, a randomized clinical trial where you're comparing, you know, people who haven't gotten vaccinated yet from people who have and all that kind of stuff. And so therefore your data are faulty. So your narrative must be faulty as well. That was mostly coming from people in the public health space. Um, who seem to think randomized controlled trials are the only way to gather data about human beings, which is an anthropologist, I can tell you, is not the case. Um, so between those three things, we were never able to get federal funding. Um, when our study was covered, journalists often also would ask MDs who have no particular expertise in what we have expertise in, and they would use their quotes first. 
you know, the story would say, oh, this MD says it's total bullshit, but here's these silly ladies and these silly ladies have these little silly lady ideas about their silly lady parts. And, you know, it was really offensive to Katie Lee, my collaborator in this and me and the whole team that people did not think that, you know, an intentionally designed, inclusively worded feminist emergent survey was somehow lower quality data. Um, and in the end, here's what's also just, I mean, satisfying for me, but frustrating because it's not going to change how broader bioscience treats us. All those other groups that were able to get funding from the NIH in order to do more of this research um, and do it prospectively with the random trials and the comparison groups, they've pretty much all had the same findings we had with our survey. So in the end, our survey didn't actually, was not as horribly biased as they wanted to believe um, and had similar results to what other people found, which is that in some people, there is a slight change with a lengthening or increase of flow to their periods. Well, the silly thoughts that you silly ladies had about your silly lady parts were very reassuring to me the first month after the vaccine. So thank you for talking about it. Uh, one thing we haven't really discussed yet is what happens when menstrual cycles end, not just in menopause, but like when they're suppressed, which seems to be something of the limit of scientific imagination on periods at the moment. But I thought what you wrote about your vision for the future of menstruation was really moving. So what do you wish our society would change about its approach to menstruation? There are so, I mean, <laughs> it's such a lovely question. Thank you so much for asking it. Um, similar to like the point about depathologizing menstruation, depathologizing PMS, I think just in general, what I'm asking is that we develop a more expansive idea of what it means to inhabit this body with a uterus um, what it means to inhabit a body that menstruates or may menstruate, and that we are more expansive in our definition of what a radical future could really look like. Um, I love the idea of a radical future where people who don't want to menstruate can stop. Um, I also know that there is a significant number of people, um, potentially up to half, who, when they use current methods to try to suppress their periods, ultimately end up discontinuing it because they don't like how they feel on it for various reasons. We can't, at least with our current technology, imagine a period future where you can just stop menstruating and that solves all problems. Um, and when you get down to the science of it, is that what we want to do if the menstrual practice hypothesis, which needs more testing, turns out to be correct, meaning um, too little menstrual practice and you can actually end up with some pretty serious pregnancy complications. So, you know, do we need alternatives to just like a spigot, turning it off when you don't want it and turning it back on when you do. Um, and should we imagine bodies in that way? Or can we again, you know, and I, and again, I invoke folks who do disability justice research, disability justice advocates, uh, people who do a lot of work in science fiction and fantasy scholarship. They have been thinking about this for a long time and I'm kind of resting on their shoulders in a lot of ways, Lisa Yashik and Sammy Shock, which two people I talk about in that chapter quite a bit. So if we set aside the idea that this is some sort of perfect thing that we can envision that we just remove it or reimagine in a way for periods, how would we need to change the structures of our society to accommodate bodies, right? And fundamentally, that's all we're asking. I mean, I have a body that has been, you know, that has had, I've had a separated shoulder, I've broken an elbow, I have had disability at various moments of my life that has made it hard to move around. I've been pregnant twice in my life. I've menstruated a couple hundred times at this point. 
I've breastfed for almost six years total over the course of two children. Um, my body's done a lot of different things that could have been a lot more pleasant if there had been room. People had said, oh, it's disgusting that you're breastfeeding your child here. Can you please put that away? <laughs> Can you cover up while you're doing this, uh, even though it's July and you could suffocate your kid if you cover them up while trying to breastfeed them? You know, so in so many ways, I'm just asking, what would it look like to create a future where all bodies have room? We have links in the show notes to Kate Clancy's new book, period, the real story of menstruation, as well as her work on mRNA vaccines and periods. Also linked Emily Martin's shocking paper, The Egg and the Sperm, How Science Has Constructed a, a Romance Based on Stereotypical Male-Female Roles, and that study about crypts in the cervix. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs> <laughs>